Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. For those outside the school, welcome to the London School of Economics and this Chevening Gurukul public lecture. Some of you already know, for those who don't, the Chevening Gurukul leadership program and the scholarships that go with it were created in 1997 to celebrate then 50 years of post-independence cooperation between India and Britain. And each year, 12 rising leaders from India have come to study here at the school、um, a variety of topics, including, of course, globalisation and international leadership problems. So, inevitably, our attention turns to the question posed by so many people of the apparent race between China and India. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce our speaker this evening, and I introduce also his recent book, which hopefully one day soon will be on the shelves of the bookshop, so that you can explore further his his ideas this evening. Raghav Bal has had a very successful career as a journalist, and more recently as an entrepreneur,、um, putting together a media empire. Which some have compared, I'm not quite sure in which sense, with our own dear Rupert Murdoch.、Um, you may wish to comment on that one way or the other. <laughs> However, it is not in those capacities that he addresses us this evening, but rather as a writer and thinker, someone who has been exploring this intriguing question. Of the rate of emergence of two superpowers, China and India,、um, asking questions with insights he finds from both his previous careers. So I will take no more of your time, but let me ask you to welcome Raghav Bal, talking about the amazing race between China's hare and India's tortoise. Good evening,、uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's such a privilege, such a proud moment、uh, for me to be here、uh, this evening with you. Before I get into、uh, China and India, I think I should I owe a clarification on the on the Rupert Murdoch、uh, comparison.、Um, we sort of started business in India in his wake. Uh, because he was the pioneer in India、uh, in the satellite television business when he opened up the skies with his、uh, network of channels, and we followed. We followed fairly fast,、uh, and we have been able to diversify、uh, quite a few of our businesses.、Uh, so the structure our business has taken has been very similar to、uh, to his businesses. So I think it's more a structural comparison, and not so much. Uh, an attitudinal or、uh, comparison of attributes.、Uh, so、uh, we take it as a compliment for the kind of business that we have built,、uh, the diversity of the business. So it's it's a commercial comparison. I don't think it's too much of an editorial comparison.、Uh, having hopefully uh, uh, clarified that comparison, which、uh, media loves shorthand, therefore media makes,、uh, and these things get tagged on.、Uh, 
The genesis of the book that uh, I have written really starts with the opening out of India's economic reform program in the early 90s. In a sense, the group that we've set up, Network 18, is a child of India's uh, economic reform program. We started the group in 1992. India began reforming itself economically in 1991. So we are a complete child uh, of, that, uh, uh, of that revolution. Uh, the group has been started and has all along been nurtured by a group of professionals. There is uh, no industrial capital or any family capital in it. In that sense, we are a child of, of, the, uh, of India's economic reform program. And uh, we've also, um, therefore, as an entrepreneur, I can say that I have had the uh, opportunity to grow along with the Indian story. But also as a business journalist, I have seen the Indian economic reform program from the inside. Therefore, I had a pretty decent sense of the mistakes we made, the opportunities we missed, some of the things that we did right, some of the things that India did wrong. But equally, as an entrepreneur and as a business journalist, I was quite fascinated by the rise of China because both these stories have played themselves out contiguously. And they also come from a very shared uh, history and a very shared legacy. I'll take you back uh, about 400 years when it has been estimated that both these countries accounted for about 50% of world GDP. Uh, the estimate is that China was about 28% and India was about 23%. Then both these countries fell under colonial domination. And for about 300 years, both these countries lost their uh, economic and political space uh, on the globe. So there's a, there's a vast amount of shared history and shared experiences uh, of these two countries. But their colonial experiences were extremely uh, different, extremely dissimilar. In fact, they were sort of mirror images of each other. Because China was actually one, largely one unified country, which came under the domination of about four or five, six uh, colonial powers. Uh, and the relationship was a relationship of strife. There were actually wars and uh, uh, problems through that 300-year-old relationship where these five or six countries tried to dominate uh, uh, China. India's experiences were a complete inversion uh, of this. India was never really one country in the sense that China was. So it was a collection of kingdoms, collection of regions, collection of ethnicities. But it was under the colonial domination of one country. And for those 250 to 300 years, the relationship was not that strife-ridden. Uh, it was a relationship which uh, had large amounts of uh, civil disobedience movement, it had skirmishes and wars, but it wasn't one continuous war or civil strife. Also, uh, there was a lot of institutional osmosis which happened uh, by virtue of uh, the British rule in India. Uh, so India really got adopted as a, as a country by the British. And the first experiments of parliamentary democracy, representative democracy, 
happened under that uh, institutional framework. English language uh, became uh, the language of education. So a lot of things happened which were entirely dissimilar from what happened in China. Coincidentally, uh, another uh, uh, tangent of history, that both the countries became free around 12 months of each other, uh, or about 24 months of each other. So again, a lot of similarities. But the entire 250, 300 years that was spent under colonial domination by the two countries were very dissimilar. And those, I believe, have been reflected very sharply in the, in the manner in which both these countries have chosen to uh, take on their reform program. So that is the context uh, uh, of, of a very shared uh, history, uh, or of a very shared historical experience. I wouldn't call it a very shared history, but a very shared historical experience. The point at which, nine, uh, the point at which uh, I began my sort of inquiry into what is it that China uh, has done and how is it that China has, uh, has been such a splendid success story economically. The point to begin obviously was 1978 uh, when Deng Xiaoping uh, started the opening up of the Chinese economy. It's a fact that I think doesn't get as much play that India in 1978 had a GDP which was larger than that of China. So India was a larger economically sized country. And far more important than just size, economic institutions in India were far stronger, were far more mature, far, far more evolved. China in 1978 virtually didn't have a central bank. Uh, it, it had hardly any trade with the rest of the world. It uh, had virtually emptied out its universities. Uh, uh, it had virtually annihilated its judiciary. Uh, there were hardly any lawyers left in the country. So in, in economic infrastructure terms, China was a vastly uh, weakened country. Of course, uh, uh, some things uh, had made China quite strong. Uh, the reform that they had done in, in the agrarian reforms and agricultural productivity uh, was very high. Uh, likewise, uh, universal primary education had made China, the Chinese much more literate. So these were two or three strengths on which uh, China could build on. But other than that, uh, economically, it was a far weaker uh, uh, framework. India, on the other hand, was beginning in the late 70s and early 80s to evolve into a fairly mature uh, democracy with institutions which were quite similar in their, in their evolution to institutions as they existed in, in the other liberal Western democracies, whether it is the Indian Central Bank, whether it was in, uh, high, high technology institutes, whether uh, indeed it was India's judiciary. All of these were evolving and maturing. And on top of that, India had a la larger uh, GDP. So if anyone was a betting person uh, in the late 70s and was asked, uh, who do you think will be the bigger and the most successful economy, I can bet you the odds would have been 100 to 1 that people would have bet, uh, of course, India uh, would, would be the country which would uh, be ahead. But then now look at the startling reality just 32 years later, 2010, today. It startles you, but it still bears repetition, that China is today four times the size of India. A country which was economically weaker and smaller 32 years ago is today four times the size of India. And this size has been gathered in actually 
the last 20 years because in per capita income terms, India was in 1990, even in 1990, as late as 1990, marginally ahead of China. So just 20 years ago, India was in per capita income terms ahead of China. So what is it that China did so right? Uh, and what is it that India missed doing or is doing on a deferred basis? And therefore, the fruits of that may possibly come a bit later. That led to this uh, dichotomy or this dissimilarity, or this startling dissimilarity between the two countries. That drove me to, to get deeper into, uh, into the way China did it. And to my mind, uh, and I don't know whether this happened unwittingly or whether this happened by design, China seemed to learn very good lessons from two of the so-called miracle economies which had preceded China. One was the Soviet Union. If you remember, in the 60s and 70s, it was widely written that the Soviet Union would overtake uh, America as the largest economy in the world. Uh, there was plenty of commentary even at that point in time that a state-directed model of growth uh, is far superior than a free market model of growth. There were many commentators who actually asserted that as, as in a, quite similar to the kind of assertions that we are hearing again today. And it was felt that that was uh, going to be the case. And then, uh, in the 80s, Japan uh, became another miracle economy. And even then it was said that it would overtake uh, the United States uh, in economic size. To me, it appeared that unwittingly China picked up a combination of the Soviet Union and Japan uh, in its economic model. And I'll dilate a bit on how. From the Soviets, of course, China obviously learned how to extract very large amounts of surpluses from its economy. The obvious surplus that it extracted was from land. In China, land is owned by the state. Uh, the peasant is uh, a tenant. Uh, and therefore, it was relatively easy for the Chinese state to extract land. And this land was uh, then uh, sold, uh, to put it simplistically, at high values. And that created surpluses in the hands of the Chinese state. It also extracted surpluses from its workers by keeping its wages relatively low. It uh, extracted surpluses from its consumers by keeping its currency uh, quite low. It extracted surpluses in the hands of its exporting companies. Uh, by again keeping the currency uh, low. So it extracted these massive surpluses and this is obviously something that uh, uh, they would have learned from the Soviet model. But quite unlike the Soviet model where uh, the Soviets tried, the Russians tried to build an insular economy, uh, an economy which was really within the Warsaw Pact countries. China did exactly the reverse. It, it, and this is perhaps something that it, again, I don't know, I, I don't have any evidence of whether it happened by design or whether it just happened. They obviously uh, learned from Japan that you should throw your economy open. And that's what China did, which was completely different from what the, 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 the Soviets had done. So they opened themselves to foreign investment. They opened themselves to foreign technology, foreign management practices. And that led to uh, this cascade of dollars and therefore created further surpluses in the hands of the Chinese state. So this was the combination uh, that came about to create quite a large part of the Chinese economic miracle. But 
it's critical to look at what China did with those surpluses. Uh, those surpluses China invested back into the economy. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite a well-known fact that no other country uh, in perhaps the history uh, of humankind has invested capital on a scale on which China has invested and is continuing to invest. It, it, its investments are about 50% of its GDP, uh, which is higher than any country has ever done. And even more critically, some of these investments, or a very large part of these investments which have been done out of these surpluses, have gone into creating social infrastructure, into uh, rural productivity, into, into, into what, are, what are typically softer areas of infrastructure or social infrastructure. And this perhaps has led to a, a, a far more empowered model of, uh, of, of, their, uh, of their consumer and ordinary citizen in an economic sense than would have been the case had they followed the classical uh, economic model of growing in a balanced way. What I've said may seem, may seem to suggest that China doesn't have any problems. Of course, China has got uh, uh, severe problems that have been caused by this uh, hyperinvestment in their economy. Uh, there are obvious uh, uh, imbalances that have been created uh, because of the way they've uh, gone about uh, doing their economic growth, and we all know the imbalances. Uh, consumption as a percentage of GDP actually has come down by 10 percentage points, and that's another dichotomy of China. Consumption in China is growing at if you look at it in absolute terms, is growing at one of the fastest rates the world has ever known. It's growing at, what, 17 to 18%. That's how fast consumption is growing. Yet, on a relative scale to GDP, it's slipped 10 percentage points. And that is one more way of just saying that they are over-investing in their economy because as a share of GDP, investments are much higher. And then there are other imbalances uh, the bad debt problem, which manifested itself first in the late 90s, where Chinese banks had to write off almost 25% of their loans, and now there is talk of uh, uh, that there could be uh, similar bad debt problems that could be uh, visiting them. There are all kinds of estimates, but uh, just the fuzziness of those estimates themselves is actually a matter of concern because the, the bad debt number is put at anywhere from 25 to 50%. Now, even if you discount this for being... Uh, uh, alarmism, or you discount this for alarmism, they're still a very, very large number. So I mean, that, 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 that sort of is, is, is what I thought uh, uh, was the Chinese model of, of growth. India, of course, on the other hand, uh, has been a far more regular economic model. Uh, and the lessons that India uh, now needs to learn are that when India began reforming itself in the early 90s, the crisis that India, that prompted India to reform, because India did not take to economic reforms of its own volition, unlike China, where Deng Xiaoping was actually convinced that that was the, the, the route to take. India was forced into opening up its economy by a crisis, because India was on the verge of bankruptcy, and therefore had to go in for an emergency line of credit by pledging its gold and then had to open out its economy under virtually uh, pressures from the rest of the world. So India did not do it voluntarily. Therefore, India concentrated in the early years on the crisis area. So therefore, for the first decade uh, of the 90s, almost the entire focus of the Indian government was on trade, investment, and financial sector reform because that's where the crisis was. So we saw fairly major policy changes that happened through the 90s. 
but correspondingly there was a neglect of some of the other critical areas whether it is infrastructure hard infrastructure or soft infrastructure as a percentage of gdp through the 90s actually as india's gdp uh, doubled and and then quadrupled as, as a percentage the spending on education and health came down so india actually regressed uh, in in the first decade of its growth in, in these very critical areas so that was one that is one lesson that is now staring india in the face the other thing of course is that being a democracy the indian state needed to build very large amounts of consensus uh, amongst various interest groups uh, conflicting interest groups uh, that took its own time also the fact that india neglected reforms in governance areas india neglected reforms in 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 areas like judicial accountability legislative reform these are all the areas in which india through the 90s hardly gave uh, that much focus as perhaps it should have and i think that's now a big realization in the country that that was a lopsided uh, uh, reform program that was launched in the 90s and that uh, you need to uh, therefore correct the balance so in a sense both china and india are now rebalancing themselves or rebalancing their uh, economic reform program the other thing that i just want to mention uh, quickly uh, is that a lot of people and and this is uh, this is quite manifest in in media it's quite manifest in in uh, also in in fairly academic commentary believe that the comparison between these two countries is misplaced uh, because china is today four times india's size Uh, and therefore any talk of any kind of uh, race or any kind of comparison between these two countries is misplaced i would completely disagree with with any such uh, uh, hypothesis for one very simple reason if you compare china of 2000 with india of 2010 that's a 10 year difference it's not a very large period of time in the histories of countries if you compare these two countries at these two points in time you will find their gdps are virtually similar yet if you look at the economic institutional strength of the two countries you will find that india in 2010 is a vastly superior institutional in an institutional sense i mean china hadn't even joined the wto in 2000 uh, it hadn't even entered uh, world trade in that manner uh, under those rules so if you compare these two at these two points in time you will find that india is a much more robust story so therefore to if you invert it and say the difference between these two countries is actually less than 10 years so you are less than 10 years apart and once you postulate the hypothesis in that manner then the comparison becomes not something that is a fanciful imagination but something that actually should be done and should perhaps merits uh more examination and more inquiry so that that's that's one more point and i think uh 2008 is another swivel year for both the economies so one one is that their 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 gap is less than 10 years the second thing is what happened in 2008 and that gives a greater uh philip to the fact that the comparison between these two countries is not something that is uh, entirely fanciful as the world went into a severe economic crisis china 
suffered a much larger episode of pain than India did. The Chinese growth rate fell from about 13% to about 6%, so it fell more than 50%. China's stock market fell, even today is about 40% off the highs. Uh, we all know that China had to uh, inject huge amounts of debt into its economy to what was you know, the, 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 the uh, spectacular Chinese stimulus program to keep or to, to get the economic momentum uh, picked up again. And China slipped into deflation for about two or three quarters. Look at what India did. India bounced back from about 9.5, which was the peak, and fell to about 6.7, and then began to rise again. So India fell only about 33 to 35% compared to China's more than 50% fall. So we bounced back, India bounced back quicker. But far more important than the statistic is that the amount of debt that was needed to get India to bounce back was much lower, much lower by comparison. So it was not a debt-fueled recovery. Uh, also, uh, the fact that India wasn't that export-dependent, a large part of India's... Um, so there was hardly any social unrest in India caused by the slowdown of 2008. While in China, we know that export industry suffered quite a bit. Uh, there, there are, some of the numbers are that about 20 million people lost their jobs. None of that happened in India. India's banks uh, did not face any problem. There has been no need for any infusion of capital, any need of recapitalization, nothing. Uh, the amount of bad debt in India's banks is still estimated at between 3 to 5 percent. So whichever way you looked at it, whichever way the world looked at it, India's bounce back after 2008 was much more sturdy, perhaps the sturdiest in the world. Also it happened, there was no deflation. Inflation came down to about 2 or 3 percent, but India never slipped into deflation. Uh, as I said, the amount of debt that was needed to, to kickstart or, or revive the economy was, was very low by any, 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 anything that happened on, in, the, in, the, in China or elsewhere. So I think the world saw that. The world saw that. And again, uh, stock markets uh, uh, in India today are back ahead of the peak of 2007, while in China they're still about 40% off the peak. So there is a welter of evidence which proves that India's bounce back in 2008 was, was much sturdier uh, than China. So I think that also makes the comparison far more uh, compelling. And the last thing is demographics. The fact that China is uh, a much older country, I don't have my statistics, so don't hold me completely to it, but I think the, uh, very soon China's average age is going to be about 37 years, while India's is still in the early 20s. 70% of India, and this, is, this bears repetition, 70% of India is under 35 years of age. And, and the figure 35 is a very important one in my mind. Because anyone in India who is under 35 years of age is a person who has only lived in a free market economy or become an adult in a free market economy. Because a person who is today 35 years old was 15 years old in 1991, 15 or 16 years old in 1991, and therefore was becoming an adult at that point in time. And ever since then, he or she has lived only in a free market economy. Obviously, the people born after that have always only lived in a free market economy. 
So there is a so 70% of India is under 35. The demographics support India. Of course, that's an equal challenge. It's as much of a challenge uh, as 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 a as a strength because India needs to again uh, get its focus right in 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 areas which will empower these young people to become productive citizens. But the demographics are certainly in India's favor. While China uh, is going to become uh, a very largely dependent society uh, as as the years unfold. So again, one more reason why this comparison is not fanciful, uh, even though this, the size is four is to one. And I think the last point uh, uh, that, that again needs to be made is, is this whole infusion of geopolitics, uh, which in today's globalized world is not, uh, is not something that is shorn or torn out of uh, an economic context. China, when it grew from 1978 to virtually 2007, again, I come back to the fact that, the, that 2008 was a swivel point uh, for these two economies. For these 30 years or 29 years, China was a country which was very careful in the way it dealt with the world. And therefore, it was, its miracle was embraced by the world. India, on the other hand, for a large part of the 20th century, was virtually a country which could be called a trade union leader in world affairs. Uh, India loved to be on the side of the have-nots. And India loved to sort of be the, 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 the outlier. It was a renegade. It was always the one which, which came in the way of, uh, uh, you know, any major global consensus on economic or, or geopolitical issues. But these roles again seem to change a, a, a around 2008. For whatever reason, and you can only speculate because the time period is so short, it's just two years. For whatever reason, after 2008, when the world saw China's economic strength relative to the rest of the world, China has become, in a geopolitical sense, a far more assertive country. Whether it's in trade, whether it's in, 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 in its regional interests, it is becoming a country with, uh, which is now increasingly at cross purposes with the world. That wasn't the case before 2008. It's become the case after 2008. And that, in a sense, is creating uh, it's creating difficulties for itself because there is what is now being called a concert of democracies, which is, which is beginning to find some form of shape. Uh, President Obama was in New Delhi uh, just last week, and one of the things that he said uh, was, I think, no American president has ever said when he actually, uh, on the floor of India's parliament, exhorted India to have a look east foreign policy and said go out and engage with ASEAN and other countries. So in a sense it was an exhortation to India to go and play uh, a counterbalancing role to China. I'm not going into the merits of that. I'm just saying that there was a, there was a change in geopolitical discourse which happened in 2008 which is not going to be uh, that uh, uh, conducive for China's growth, as was the case before 2008. On the other hand, India has become much more of a team player for the rest of the world. 
and therefore is getting co-opted much more in uh, all global discourse, whether it's environment, whether it's uh, uh, on economy, whether it's on, on any other global uh, issue. That is again a, a, a sort of changing discourse. And all of these things will have their, uh, their downstream impact. It's now, uh, again, fairly large consensus among economists that uh, in another three or four years, uh, India should be growing faster in real terms. India is already growing faster in nominal terms than China today. But in, in real terms as well, India would start growing faster. And do remember that nominal terms in such a fast-growing economy uh, is not something which is uh, uh, something that you can completely ignore because immediate corporate profitability actually comes from nominal growth. It doesn't come so much from real growth. And immediate corporate profitability is important uh, when the country is trying to build its infrastructure, when the country is trying to do several new things. So uh, it is not something to be completely ignored. It is something to be looked at. But in real terms as well now, it is a, um, it is a widely uh, accepted notion that India should surpass China in, in growth terms in the next three to five years. And again, you're beginning to see evidence of it. If you, start, if you just see the three quarters of this year, China has come down from 11% to 10% to 9%. I'm not using the decimals here. I think it's 11.3 and 10.5 and 9.5. But Clearly, China is trending down uh, in its growth rate, while India is every quarter increasing its growth rate. So this is, again, more evidence of the fact that at some time this, these lines will cross and India will become the faster-growing economy. And from there, it's anybody's call on when these two economies begin converging in their, uh, in their absolute size as well. Uh, it's not something that's going to be easy because the Indian economy's uh, absorptive capacity is, is abysmal compared to what China has created. And therefore, India will now have to get its act together in whether it's in building its infrastructure, whether it's in reforming its laws, whether it's in, in doing everything that's needed to uh, create uh, a much more absorptive uh, economy. But if India can do that, uh, and that's a big if, but if India can do that, then clearly the, the convergence will happen much more rapidly than uh, is, is being thought of today. And the next few years will tell us. There are, some, there are some early signals of positive change that are happening in India. And I would flag just a couple of them. The most important thing in India, uh, and this again is, is, a, is a mirror image with China, frankly, and there are so many of these mirror images, uh, in China, the state is so strong and so effective, while civil society is playing catch-up. In India, it's completely the other way around. Civil society is extremely effective, extremely vocal, while the state is, is I, I wouldn't mince word, it's abysmally weak and has to play catch-up. There are some, some signals uh, which at least lead me to believe that that could be happening. And one of the most important things that's happening today in India, which again hasn't got that much media commentary, and I've tried to ask myself that question, why it hasn't got that much media commentary? And the answer I can, I can only come up with is that in democracies, change is imperceptible. Uh, because there's no one who, who stands out with a megaphone and says, uh, this is positive change. Because um, 
by its by their very nature the negatives get uh, amplified much more than the positive so therefore change positive changes usually happens under the uh, ha happens subterranean and then when it acquires a particular momentum it becomes uh, far more visible and far more um, sort of understood and far more commented on but there is one major change that is happening in india which uh, hasn't received as i said the kind of uh, focus that i believe it should because it's 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 to my mind a, it could be the seminal change and that is that through the 90s when india was coming to terms with a new economic model india was what was being called an anti incumbency country it was a very angry and it was a very sullen electorate which was continuously voting out governments india voted out five sitting governments national governments in 90 through the 90s uh governments just simply changed hands because the, the the voter was an angry voter and at the provincial level the same things were happening but there's a complete change in 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 the 2000s uh, from about 2002 or 3 i would say where india seems to have become a pro incumbency uh country where the electorate has doesn't seem to be angry and sullen anymore the electorate now seems to be voting in even half performing governments and that's important because in india half performing is also it's above zero <laughs> so and that's a, that's a major change because leader after leader or government after government who's performing even halfway well is being voted back and nothing gets a politician more excited than the ability to get reelected so when a politician sees that even halfway governance is getting him back into power that has a very powerful uh, it's it's a very powerful tonic for change and we are seeing that we are seeing that in the country in in small bits and pieces and i leave you with one example that i believe again is the most critical example where uh, good governance civil society ahead of uh, uh, head of uh, politicians and 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 state and the state is being manifested quite uh, nicely india has one of the great weaknesses and one of the questions that always keeps on coming up is why is infrastructure why is india not investing so much in infrastructure what's wrong why can't you can't don't you guys get it don't you guys see that you need it one of the main reasons that india has not been able to invest the required amounts in infrastructure is that we uh, our land acquisition policies are very outdated our land acquisition law was written in 1894 it was written by the british it was written in a country which was not a democracy but was a subject state it was written in a country whose population was 1/5 of it is today it was written with the sole purpose of creating a railway infrastructure in india Now can you imagine the dichotomy of when that law was written what the state of the country was to 2010 where you have five times more people you are a boisterous democracy uh and you still have a law which is written for a subject state because the law is draconian it it says the law says that you can go in and take you can declare anything to be public purpose you can take the land away you can determine what you will pay in compensation uh and the person just has to accept it obviously india civil society has not accepted that law is not accepting it anymore and therefore acquiring land has become the big problem uh, in the country 
you would imagine that if the law hasn't reformed itself, uh, that politicians in connivance with uh, business interests would be able to simply snatch away land. They have not been able to do that, which has, again, led to the biggest delays in infrastructure projects. But even more importantly, even though the law of the land allows uh, the, the government to take away uh, or snatch away land, uh, state government after state government is actually enacting of its own volition far more fair land acquisition policies. Just last month in, in the state of Uttar Pradesh where there was a major uh, um, protest by farmers whose land was taken away. Uh, it's a district of Aligarh which is about 150 kilometers uh, outside New Delhi. The government was forced overnight to come out with a set of policies which were far more fair to the farmer. Uh, they gave a 33-year annuity to the farmer besides giving uh, uh, market value for the land. So not only was the farmer given market value for his land, he was also now given 33 years of recurring income so that you know, he, he doesn't have to face economic hardship. And a model was being thought of which would allow the farmer to participate in the equity upside that would be created from the development of the land through either, re, through either giving him back a part of the developed land or giving him shares, uh, equity interest in the asset that was to be created. So that's the power of civil society today in India where suddenly what was a violent movement of farmers in Aligarh actually became a movement where when this policy was announced overnight, the farmers welcomed it. In fact, the chief minister, uh, in, in a sort of retaliatory move before, had cancelled one of the projects and said that, okay, if, you guys, if, if the farmers don't want it, it's over, this is cancelled. But when the new policy was adopted, actually the farmers of that area came to the chief minister and said, we would like that project to be, uh, be re-notified. And we would like you to give us the same policy for this land acquisition. So there are these, there are these things which are happening in the country where civil society uh, is taking the lead. And even though the law of the land may be far behind, government action is conditioned much more by pressures of civil society than by, uh, than by the law of the land. So these are, these, are, these are forces that are at work which uh, are positive and which lead one to believe that perhaps this gap that the world is today looking at will converge more rapidly than popular commentary uh, seems to suggest today. I think I've actually taken more of my time <laughs> on, on, on this. So I, I think with this I would, I, would, uh, uh, I would close my remarks, but I would be very happy to uh, engage in any uh, conversation or questions or whichever way it goes. I think you've provoked quite a lot of questions. I could see questioning looks all over the room as I glanced round. And would you like to ask the first question? Yes. The microphone is coming. Thank you for the wonderful lecture. I'm Anjana Singh, Department of Economic History. Thank you. The Economist informs me that two-thirds of the world's GDP, two-thirds of the world's weapons, two-thirds of the world's um, research and development funding is controlled by one-seventh of the world's population, which is Northwest Europe and Northern America. One has reached this stage after 500 years of systematic exploring, trading, and profiting. 
Don't you think it is a bit too early to forecast a superpower from Asia? Uh, it, it all it probably boils down to how you define a superpower. <laughs> if you go in, if you go in with the classical definition of a military superpower, then I think yes. But the fact that uh, the the fact that economic growth is today taking place uh, and is growing at virtually double digits in large parts of Asia will mean certainly that that the the economy the the, the, the sort of unbalanced uh, statistic that you gave will begin to balance itself out quite quickly. Now, again, it's a definition of yeah. Again, it's a definition of what is quickly, but. Suffice it for us to say that I think 20 to 30 years we'll see us rebalancing this quite a bit. Now, rebalance may not become equal, but much more equal than it is today. But these are, these are, these are you know, forces of history. It's difficult to pinpoint them down. But the process is well and truly happening. Uh, I have a question and I want to remark this. Uh, you mentioned about benefits of demographic gains of growing population. Now it's always a debatable issue from Adam Smith's time, etc., etc. But the fact remains that India will overtake China in terms of absolute population by 2026. And the result of explosive population growth is always younger population. The average age will keep coming down. Bangladesh will have an average younger age than India and so on and so forth. But the negative side, flip side of it is that per capita availability of everything comes down, growing unemployment and the need to incentivize to make growth age neutral is no longer there. So, so what's your comment on this? I mean it's very easy to say that India has a young population and that's an asset. But the reality is something else. We need to control population and rather than you know, taking it as a positive thing because the fact remains per capita availability of everything is coming down. And, and we don't have any incentive to make growth age neutral. No, I think when you say that uh, demographic is, uh, is, is not, not an uh, unmitigated asset, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Uh, but population growth rates are stabilizing in India now. Uh, you know, we are not we are not too far above the 2.1 percent sort of replacement rate. Yeah, about 1.5, 1.6 billion is when you expect that India would stabilize. I'm not I'm not downplaying it at all. I think the biggest challenge for the Indian state today, the biggest challenge is how the how, how does it empower and make this bulging workforce productive. It is clearly the biggest uh, 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 challenge. And if it's not done, then everything that I've spoken about will be uh, will come to naught. No question about it. Thank you. Question here. Thank you very much. Um, being a Chinese here, well, we Chinese always think that um, we compared China and India not on the perspective of hare and tortoise. We compared on the perspective of jargon and elephant. But anyway, thank you very much for giving us the broad picture on this kind of a competition. Um, as I see it, um, China is by far no means a lazy hair, and India is by far no means a kind of uh, slowly but directly correct tortoise. I have a question concerning on your point on civil society, especially on the 
uh, in these few years, we experienced a kind of violent dispatchment and relocation in China for land acquisition by the government. Um, being the vanguard of a media group in India, what do you think the media's attribution or contribution to promote this kind of civil voice to be heard by the government? Because we see the experience in China of getting more and more voices from the news group or news media to encourage the populace or people to have a fair say with the government. So what do you see as your role of a media or media reporter to help to uh, promote or kind of consolidate this kind of uh, uh, spirit which you are largely proud of in the Indian society? Oh, so the question is for India, how, how media in India would... Uh, yes, yes. Media in India probably needs to tone down a bit, actually. It's, uh, it, it's, it's far too ahead of the curve uh, in terms of... You know, I'll give you the classic example of the Commonwealth Games. Wherever I went, <laughs> wherever I went, I was asked, will you guys be able to do it? Uh, my God, what's happening there? And I'll tell you, one of our channels, our own channels, my own editor. There's a, there's a boxing stadium, quite large. What happens is, what breaks off is, you see this little piece? Two tiles inside it. Two tiles. Two, and I'm not exaggerating. Two tiles fall off. In the pre, in, it's still in construction. No games have begun. Games are still a week away. Two tiles fall off. You know the headline in our channel? Our channel. Roof comes crashing down. <laughs> I, I have to say, this is in the best Rupert Murdoch tradition. <laughs> but seriously, uh, media has played an enormous role uh, in, in being the voice of civil society in India. And uh, it's, it's a strength. I mean, ultimately the Commonwealth Games were held. Ultimately, no roof crashed. Uh, all the events happened together. And some of the things, you know, Again, you have a village of you have, you have a village which has I think 1,250 flats. Some of those flats were not supposed to be ready for the games. A snake was found in one of those, and it was all over that you know the guy holding the snake. And this was this made world headlines. <laughs> snake found in Commonwealth Games village. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I don't think India did the best job India could have in Commonwealth Games. It would have done much better. But it wasn't nearby, nearly as bad as the media made it out to be. I mean, if the media, if you believed the media every morning, those games wouldn't have been held. There was very serious talk of are these games going to be cancelled. Uh, hi, um, uh, my name is Rafa. I um, represent Project Five Months, Five Cities. Uh, could you please expand more on your civil society part? What you, what exactly you mean by that? I had a pleasure recently visiting uh, New Delhi. Uh, spent over a month over there, and unfortunately, the impression I get of the society was that it is majority of very poor uh, people and then a corrupted government and a small group of very privileged people on the other side. So um, I would like to just, uh, your more deeper explanation, what does it mean to you, the civil society? Thank you. Uh, as the example that I gave of, of the farmer's uh, agitation in Aligarh and the fact that overnight the government had to uh, adopt a farm or fair 
uh, acquisition package. That was an entirely civil society-led uh, pressure. What is civil society? There are media, of course, uh, is a very, very strong component of that. But so are a large number of non-government organizations, large number of activists, political activists as well as social activists. Uh, so it's very evident if, you, if uh, when you are in India that you see the power of, 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 of civil society, whether it's a public interest litigation. Uh, Indian courts today take cognizance of even simple letters written to them and actually intervene, and actually intervene uh, uh, in several areas. Again, I, you know, I don't want to paint a picture of India as a country, uh, a, a paradise where nothing is wrong. There is much more wrong in India uh, than, uh, than right. I don't think that, that can be denied even by the Indian Prime Minister, and I don't think he denies it. There's much more wrong. But there are, there are areas in India where clearly uh, the fact that the individual is politically empowered. He may not be economically well off, but he's politically empowered. Is a huge mitigating factor. It's a huge mitiga mitigating factor, uh, and and that's manifested itself in all these things that we talked about. Uh, whether it's land, whether it's mineral, uh, whether it's just. Uh, the whole Right to Information Act, which is now becoming quite a movement uh, in India. So I, I am the first one to concede that there is a lot uh, that is wrong. Uh, and, and I don't think India tries to hide that at all. I think it's, it's right up there and it's, uh, it's, it's openly discussed. We have, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are people like uh, Arundhati Roy who actually uh, write openly about uh, uh, about how uh, you know corrupt, venal, exploitative the Indian state is, and she is a celebrity in the country. She's not put behind any bars. So I think that I mean the civil society movement is very strong. I, I don't think that can be denied. How effective it is in addressing India's problems uh, in a in a substantial way, I think time will tell. But uh, uh, the fact that today you have a right to information act, the fact is that some of those RTI activists are also murdered. So yes, it has its own. Uh, downstream impact, but the fact that a lot of uh, right to information activists are, al are also actually getting uh, the state to be far more accountable is also a reality. We have a question right at the top there, please. Yeah, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, I not. Uh, in entire agreement about Arundhati Roy. In fact, you see the Indian states are threatening to charge her with sedition. Uh, Indians are like American. My right, um, my country right or wrong, you see. They are so sensitive about any discussions. Your judiciary is so survived and so uh, slow in decision as such. And she has been subjected to so much harassment that she came out and said, well, this is un-Indian. How can you challenge Kashmir? Even Obama and other people are afraid to talk about Kashmir uh, anytime. And this is not, uh, and your press is completely survived. I can't understand you talking about your media. 
uh, where you see the threatening, you see uh, anyone uh, raises any point about Kashmir, immediately 70,000 to 100,000 people have died and nothing is being raised in India. It is so silent. Well, uh, one thing Arundhati has not been charged with sedition. A few media reports do not make a government policy. I don't think any government of India could ever charge her with sedition. And, and the proof of the pudding is in the eat. There were only a couple of media reports which said she is going to be charged with sedition. She hasn't been charged, she will never be charged. That's not the kind of country that, that India is. Who's? Has she been killed? No. <laughs> so, I, 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 think, I, I, think, I think we have, we have a, as rowdy a democracy as exists anywhere in the world. So if someone says something, it makes it to the front pages of the newspapers. Um, thank, you for the, thank you for the lecture. Uh, my question is, uh, Bijli Sadak Pani or electricity, uh, road and water is today still a major part of any domestic political campaign for any election. And do you think that India in its quest for economic growth has forgotten that a lot of the majority of the population still lives in the rural areas and rather than being concerned with 9% economic growth, they're more worried about these basic factors of living? Thank you. I'm not very sure that I fully understand the question because these, these issues are, are germane to uh, India's economic growth. So there is no conflict between a Bijli Sadak Pani uh, or a, you know, electricity, roads, water, to do a translation. Electricity, roads, water being the paradigm uh, of, you know, today uh, a, a, a political party, it's again the sea change that I talked about. Uh, today a political party in India is trying to win elections on electricity, water and, uh, you know, roads rather than on caste divisions, rather than on... Uh, uh, creating religious uh, strife, which is what it did in the 90s. The 90s was, was evidence. And I, you know, I think just to, uh, just to add to that point, in three days from now, um, the state of Bihar is going to uh, vote on, on its government. And traditionally, it has been always thought that if there, if, if there is one state which represents all that is wrong with India, it is Bihar. Uh, because uh, law and order, caste politics, Maoism, poverty, crumbling infrastructure, everything is there in Bihar. But Bihar is possibly going to vote three days from now, and uh, I may be eating my words, but what it seems like is that the sitting government of Nitish Kumar is likely to win quite a handsome victory on issues of exactly what you spoke about. So Bihar has changed, or Bihar's politics has changed. Thank you. Right in the middle. Thank you, Mr. Bal. I really enjoyed your lecture. I'm here. <laughs> um, it's a long way back. Got you. I, I was born in Shanghai, but I was brought up in Calcutta, and I graduated from IIT Kharagpur. Oh, great. Yeah, then I went to work for IBM in the States, then came to Britain since 1970. I, I really liked your story about the shared past, but I think you missed one minor anecdote of shared past between India, China, and Britain. China had the tea, India had the opium, and Britain had the East India Company. So that, that's, I think, more interesting. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, your, your points are very, very compelling. I had come here expecting for you to use the, the demographics as the main 
plank, but in fact, in your presentation, it's a minor plank, so, so I applaud you for that. However, I suspect you might have missed a key point, and that is of leadership, because nothing works without the right leadership. I don't know if it's a well-known fact, but eight of the nine members of the Central Committee of the Politburo in China are trained engineers. Hu Qingtao is a nuclear engineer. Wang Chiapao is, I think, a hydraulics engineer. Well, I may have got the other way around. You may have got the other way. Uh, yeah, Hu Jintao is a, is a, is a, ran a yeah. hydraulic power plant. That's right. and exactly. Uh, ben exactly. is a nuclear And the new designated leader to be, uh, he's a chemical engineer. Okay? Most leaders in other countries tend to be either lawyers or economists. Okay? And the punchline here is, engineers are trained to solve problems. Econ <laughs> economists are trained to analyze problems. And lawyers are trained to limit problems. <laughs> Engineers are also trained to uh, solve mechanical problems or problems of machines. Uh, economists may have a little bit more humane uh, uh, approach to solving problems. But I think your point on leadership, uh, I, at least in the book I haven't uh, uh, sort of, I may have sidetracked it in today's talk, but the one thing that I uh, am completely convinced about is that China's leadership is yards and years ahead of India's leadership. It's an inversion. In India, we are civil society-led. Our leadership is very weak, extremely weak. China's leadership has given evidence of being an extremely strong and extremely focused leadership. In fact, in the book, I, I also say that if imagine if India was to get a bit of China's leadership, and if China was to get a bit of India's democracy, imagine what would happen then. Thank you. I'm Atar Hussain from the London School of Economics. Originally, my family came from Bihar. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to raise the question for you to comment on relationship between economic growth and poverty reduction. Most of poverty reduction which has taken place in the world last 30 years is in China. India's record in poverty reduction so far has been tenuous. So the ultimate question is, economic growth is whether the population at large benefits from that or not. So far, the evidence is in favor of China. Uh, yes, and that is the uh, sort of great uh, uh, Chinese achievement. Again, you know, uh, you, statistics can, can sometimes be used very cleverly, and I don't know how correct it is, so I, this is not, it's not a part of my book. It, this is something which happened afterwards. But there was a statistic that while China has taken out 400 million people out of poverty in the last 30 years, India in the last 12 years has done 120 million people. So an extrapolation, someone tried to say that India's record is better. I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a clever play of statistics because just the sheer quantity of 400 versus 120 is, tells its own story. But yes, you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it can be denied. Uh, and, and the point that I made was that India got sidetracked in the first 10 years of its reform. It got so sidetracked into handling uh, just trade investment finance. Because again, uh, the, the critical difference was that India started reforming not out of India's reforms were not voluntary. India's reforms were forced, were coerced. Then there was a much larger consensus that built up in the country that this is good for us. 
So therefore, the first 10 years of reform India was actually simply uh, firefighting uh, in a sense and didn't turn its attention to the critical areas of poverty alleviation or rural investment or health or, ag uh, or, or education that China did uh, 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 you know, very much from the beginning. So uh, this is something that India clearly needs to learn from China. Thank you. Uh, one down here at the front, please. Sorry to keep you running up and down. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Bal. Uh, my name is Sunil, and I'm an alumni of LSE. Um, you did raise some quite interesting comparisons between India and China. And I just picked up on one thing about India being the team player of the world. Uh, in the past few years that I have been attending lectures at the LSE, I've seen probably more Indian speakers, leaders, political and business than Chinese. And no offense to my Chinese friends. Uh, and it could be either that India's reach to the English-speaking Western world is far more, or it could be that the Indians talk more and the Chinese do more. <laughs> so, <laughs> moving on, <laughs> uh, moving on to my question, uh, we we claim ourselves to be a functioning democracy, in the sense of the word, and the fact remains that corruption is rampant in every single arm of a functioning de democracy, uh, in the executive, as exemplified by all the scandals for the CWG in the media as exemplified by the paid news scandal uh, and in the judiciary as exemplified by the high court judge scandals. Uh, is there a deeper problem that India needs to address if it has to move forward? Thank you. Well, corruption is, is, a, is a huge problem and is a problem, if I may say, of democracies uh, because it is transparent and bubbles up to the surface. Corruption in totalitarian states Probably you never come to here, but I don't think it can be anybody's case that there is no corruption in China. Uh, you, you know, maybe you should talk off the record with the Chinese people, and they could give you several examples of corruption. Corruption is, uh, but this is no defence for India's corruption. And I, and again, you know, it, it's this, it's the example that I gave of three tiles fell off and the roof crashed. It's, so therefore, one paid news scandal happened in one district of India in a local election by a vernacular press and India's media becomes a paid news media. You know, so I think you have to, you, we have to keep a little balance. Uh, I don't think you can take away from the fact that India has a genuinely free press. The odd black sheep is always there. And the fact that it gets so much of play uh, is again a, is a function of democracy, nothing else. Thank you, this is Madhu Yaski. I'm a Gurkul scholar and also a member of parliament, Lok Sabha. I want quick clarification on land acquisition, though the last were written in, by British in 1800s, but it is recent judgments by the various high courts and Supreme Courts has simplified and even the recent example which you mentioned, the UP case also, the high court have defended the government stand on acquiring the land. In case of Hyderabad, even the land acquired for golf courts when the farmers were paid just 5 lakhs and these they sold it plots for like some crores, 5-10 crores. Even such cases also, courts held that it is in the interest of the public interest. The tourism will develop and people in general get benefited. So those laws have 
fairly simplified and defend in the government. Where there's a dif difficulties at land acquiring is the farmers who are deprived of fair compensation to them. So that is one India has to look at it. But my question is, uh, I did travel to China too. India still left 30 crores population below poverty level. The widening gap between the rich and the poor do, during this economic liberalization is widening. To catch up China, I think the, the infrastructure which they've invested huge as you rightly pointed out, but we are way behind doing in it. Land acquisition is not a problem, but it's a mindset and the proper implementation loss. Like for example, even mining loss, like acquiring land in mining, where those tribals have no land records and they've not paid compensation. That's a huge problem, as you know, the development versus displacement. So my question is, uh, in spite of having this 30 crores population left behind, and do we equip to catch up or surpass China's Chinese economy? It's very fascinating to listen, and uh, it also encourages me to that India has potential, as you rightly pointed out, we are better GDP growth during 90s. My second question is, uh, the Chinese involvement in infrastructure development projects in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, all those countries surrounding India and their influence through the economic controlling in those countries, which is very critical for India to face this since we have a border problem with various countries. So how India should face the Chinese aggression through the economic development in those countries neighboring to India? Thank you. I, you know, I, geopolitically, there is, it's quite clear that um, China does see India as a potential competitor a uh, few decades down. That's fairly clear. However, strenuously, leaders may want to deny it. And it was leaked in the Indian media that when the Prime Minister met some editors, he did say that China would like to keep India engaged in low-level equilibrium. Of course, the Indian state the next day said that it was remark was taken out of context, but the remark wasn't denied. So I think there is, there is that uh, feeling uh, in, uh, or, the, or the conviction amongst Indian leadership that they are being engaged in this low-level equilibrium, uh, where China is clearly investing very heavily in, uh, in, in Nepal, in Sri Lanka, in, uh, uh, even in Bangladesh now, and Pakistan, of course, uh, they are, and, and Afghanistan uh, as well, increasingly. So I think the challenges for India's foreign policy uh, establishment, I'll I had a meeting, and I wouldn't like to name him, but I had a meeting with a very high-ranking Indian uh, foreign policy official. And I raised the same question that you've asked. Uh, I said, aren't you, aren't you losing sleep? Aren't you concerned? And his response left me a bit flustered, actually. His response was, well, what do you do? Look at their balance sheet and look at ours. <laughs> now, there was, there was an element of honesty which I appreciated, but there was also an element of helplessness, which, which, which you don't. And I, and I said, but how do you say that, sir? Uh, do you know that one Indian company, and this is a conversation I'm just reproducing, because I said, do you know that one Indian company, one Indian company, has made a $10 billion acquisition in Africa? I said, do you know if a China had done that? Do you know how much leverage China would have got from that? 
a Chinese bank goes and buys a Chinese state-owned bank, backed by the government of China, backed by two and a half trillion dollars of foreign reserves, goes and makes a five billion dollar acquisition of a, of, of a stake in a South African bank, and that becomes world headlines. An Indian company, with no help from the government, entirely on the strength of its own balance sheet, goes and makes a ten billion dollar acquisition, and the Indian state shrinks away from it. Doesn't want to know. Doesn't even want to know why why it was done, how it was done. So the answer I'm. So I told him that I said, why if if your balance sheet, if the government of India's balance sheet is weak, that doesn't mean India's balance sheet is weak. Why couldn't you get public-private partnerships going? Uh, this was in the context of the Sri Lankan port, where he said India we didn't we didn't even bid. I said, why didn't you bid? Couldn't you ask Mr. Gautam Adani to come in with? A company and bid for it. The Indian state doesn't think like that. He 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 just he said, yeah, you could have done that, but you know, <laughs> sort of sort of left it at that. It's quite amazing. But uh, yeah, these are these are. I I think India now needs to have new paradigms going for itself, uh, which the Indian state uh, has to has to get itself far more energized. India has vacated in foreign policy. India has vacated almost every place that India enjoyed. Uh, we have no voice today in Iran. Once upon a time, it was uh, a very close relationship. We have no voice today in the Middle East. Once upon a time, a very close relationship. We have no voice today in South Africa or, or African countries. Once upon a time, very strong relationship. Very soon, you will have no voice in South Asia. <laughs> Things continue the way they are. I think it's a challenge for the Indian state. Ladies and gentlemen, um, by your questions, you show just how much interest our speaker has raised. However, I suggest that at this point, we stop the formal part of the proceedings and we invite you to retire outside where some drinks await you. And if you would like to continue in informal discussion, we do so. May I call on you to join me in thanking our speaker? I, but I think your questions have said it all.